Hi, I'm Abby Wieland. When I was a kid, I was quiet to an extreme, completely terrified to raise my hand in class and live to please the people around me. Most of these characteristics played out in the confines of school buildings. I didn't skitter around my house as a silent mouse. I'm pretty sure my sister and I tore that place apart and at times were shoved outside to play due to all the screaming and running about. One of our favorite games to play was Camp Survival, in which one of us sat atop the bunk beds ready to push the other off and defend her turf, while the other attempted to claw her way up without the use of the ladder or frame. Yelling and laughing and some crying, I'm sure, ensued, often resulting in one of us being pushed off and crashing to the floor. My sister and I were, and perhaps still are, a strange pair. We aren't twins, but are so close in age that we may or may not have developed a secret language between us likened to that of twins. In our years growing up, we came up with lots of loud and obnoxious games ending with forced outside time. All this to say, at home I wasn't what one would describe as meek. However, at school, it was a different story. If you asked teachers and other students at the time, I think most would have described me as shy, quiet, reserved, introverted. Growing up, I felt anxious when expected to speak in class. I didn't raise my hand, and at the off chance I thought I may be randomly called on, I'm talking to you, popsicle stick with my name on it. I practiced the answer over and over and over in my brain, making sure I came up with the perfect arrangement of thoughts and words. I was a good reader, yet when we read aloud in class, I counted the sentences just like everyone else to make sure I was prepared to perfectly read my string of words. Growing up, my parents were both teachers. Life felt like a microscope at times. All the people examining our every move, just waiting for a misstep. Living this kind of life as one half of the Rouse sisters proved more taxing on me than I ever thought. Living up to the standards I had set for myself, that others had set for me, was exhausting. I was defined by success, and success meant winning, winning at whatever I set my mind to. If I attempted something, I was going to be the best at it, no matter what it took to get there. I was one of those kids who despised change. When I was a child, my grandma attempted to move the Christmas tree from the dining room to the living room of their house, and I had a mini meltdown. There was zero rationality in my position on this issue. She moved the tree from the room with the dining room tables and the hard tile flooring to the room with the couches and the carpet and the comfort. The new room was bigger and all around superior. None of this mattered to my child brain. The mere fact the tree was no longer going to live in the place it had my entire life was enough to send me into a tailspin. The similar situation occurred when my mom moved our tree at home from the living room to the family room, not to mention the year they purchased a fake tree instead of a real live one. My grandparents used to have a school bus converted into some sort of hippie camper type situation. When my mom was younger, they traveled around the country in this bad boy. Growing up, my cousins and I used it as a playhouse of sorts. One day, my grandpa sat us down and informed us they would be selling said bus. And as a bribe to us all, we're going to give us each a part of the profits. I think I was around 10 at the time. You might assume we all happily pocketed that cash and went about our lives. 
you would be wrong. About half of us organized a demonstration, complete with picket signs, demanding we keep the bus. We still have pictures of this epic moment in history. I think it was my cousin Mallory, perhaps one or two others, our baby cousin David, and myself representing the Keep the Bus campaign. I couldn't believe my grandparents were going to so easily get rid of this treasure, especially one so integral to our parents' childhood and now ours. The fact that we knew about demonstrating and picketing and the like shows you a bit about my family life and how we were raised. Still, we lost and got paid off. This is all to say I didn't always embrace change. I clung to every single thing that had ever been a part of or defined my life. And then I went to college. The next few years began my journey through chaos. Though I completed my entire college career at one university, I spent about six months in Florida with the Disney College program and moved to Minneapolis for student teaching. In the years that followed, I not only tolerated change, I sought it out. Teaching in three different school districts in five years, taking a year off in the midst of these years to get married, backpack through Europe, and spend time in Ecuador volunteering. I was 27 when my first marriage ended. I was spiraling, and in the midst of the chaos, lost sight of who I was created to be. I always tell people when I talk about this time that failing relationships and divorces absolutely take two people. But if there was one instance in which one person bulldozed through that thing, my divorce was it. My ex-husband is probably one of the purest, kindest humans on this earth. As it happens when you get divorced young, the entire world wanted to know what happened. It seems when older couples, those who have fought and clawed their way through years and years of marriage, get divorced, people don't ask a lot of questions. People know. They've experienced the downward turn. They've witnessed the pain. But in our case, the world didn't get a front row seat to our demise, and they demanded to know why. I didn't know. I didn't know what to tell them. I didn't know what to tell myself. Over the years, the words have come to me. They had to, as apparently the deal is, if you get divorced, you're expected to tell your story over and over to every person who learns your truth. My ex is a farmer. His dream was to take over his dad's farm, to expand it, to make it more sustainable. In this time, I convinced myself that I too wanted these things. I too longed to make our life on the farm and work towards sustainability to change the face of farming in the upper Midwest, to live in the midst of conservative Dutch country. I stood at the top of the pasture in my sundress and mud boots, looking out on the acres of land before me. I fed our bottle calf, whom I named Benny, much to the chagrin of his entire family. Apparently naming the livestock isn't a common farm practice, at least for adults. But I loved Benny very much. I envisioned our children running around the farm in their tiny little boots. I dreamed of building a wraparound porch on the farmhouse. I planned for the day I would get ducklings and try to get them to imprint on me because I couldn't think of anything better than ducklings following me around like I was their mom. In the time leading up to our marriage, I succeeded in telling myself these stories. I convinced myself and everyone around me that this is what I wanted. I wrote the story of our lives so the train could keep moving forward. The Abbey I always knew was now different. 
She was content with living her life in rural Minnesota, attending a small Calvinist church, raising our future kids, and teaching in the classroom. But then, something happened. It wasn't in one moment, or even one day. Slowly, over the course of weeks and months, I looked around and didn't recognize myself or my life. I was living in a story that didn't feel like my own. It felt foreign to me. The characters around me weren't my people, just actors, there to pl actors placed there to carry on the story. The more I looked around, the more anxious I got. Anxious and alone made worse by the fact that no one else had put me there. I did that all by myself. The very worst part of this season was that in my journey to find myself again, I was hurting someone else beyond measure. This man who loved me wholly and passionately, who had traveled the world with me, I was deeply wounding him. In that time, I didn't have the words. So to him, I know I appeared like a caged animal, doing everything I could to just get out, to somehow get away. I didn't know how to tell him that as I looked around at our life, I no longer recognized myself. He was confused and anxious and damaged, and rightly so. There never was and never will be words I can say to him to make that time better. During the counseling and separation and divorce season, I was spiraling. I was spiraling in part because the life I had envisioned and made happen was falling completely apart. I could not seem to shove all the pieces of our brokenness back together into a nice, neat picture. This was a time in which I drank entirely too much because then I had an excuse as to why I had no control over my life. This was a situation in which I spent the whole of winter break on my parents' couch in leggings, unwashed hair, and a top-knot bun, eating the least amount I could and crying about all the things. It was not pretty, but it shouldn't have been. I needed to wrestle with everything I wanted for myself, the choices I had made and would make going forward. I needed to discover once again who I was created to be, not who I coerced myself into being. As I write these words in my 32nd year, I can say I truly feel like myself again, but it's been a hard road. After my divorce, I determined my next move in life was to come home. So I moved closer to my hometown to Cedar Falls, where my sister and her family lived. Eventually, about six months after moving back through a series of events, I moved in with them. Never once did I think I would be 30 years old living with my sister and never in my wildest dreams could I have predicted the level of amazing it was. Waking up each day to my two-year-old niece, living in that house when my nephew was born, taking the kids to the park and going on walks, early morning talks with my sister over coffee. None of this would have happened had I continued the life I made happen for myself. These are the pieces I didn't carefully craft. This part of my life lacked a perfect storyboard. These moments of beauty came in the between times, the days and weeks and months actually making up our lives. A few years ago, I began my doctoral degree. It was a Monday night when I walked into my very first class. The professor was not yet there, so we waited outside the locked door. I looked around me and quickly noticed I was the youngest person present. Also evident was the fact everyone else knew each other. I was the lone newbie. As I looked around, I noted all these women were dressed up. 
I regarded my own jeans and hooded sweatshirt and immediately questioned whether I missed the part in the student handbook about dress code. Perhaps doctoral students didn't wear jeans. We filed into the room and took our seats. Quietly, I watched and listened to the voices and words coming out of these women's mouths. They were so well-spoken, employing words I had never heard. I wondered if I was smart enough. Maybe the committee got it wrong when they let me in here, I thought. I clearly didn't belong. I'm obviously not intelligent enough or well-dressed enough or articulate enough. I carried a backpack instead of a professional tote bag. My hair was thrown into a ponytail. This went on for three hours that night. I tried to focus on what the professor was saying, but the entire time I worried I wasn't perfect enough for this program. And then Saturday came, and along with it, two additional courses I was taking that semester. I timidly strode into the room a few minutes before 8 a.m. and was relieved to see that not a single person in the room was in my Monday night class. Perhaps these people are more like me, I speculated, as I eyed the crowd and saw jeans and hooded sweatshirts and yoga pants. Doing this doctoral life with the group of people I met in my program has proven to me over and over that none of us feel perfect, but in fact on the opposite end of that spectrum. Through discussions and work on group projects and commiserating through text messages on the weekends, it became increasingly clear that none of us felt like we belonged. None of us felt prepared or ready or smart enough. Discovering this did not come quickly or easily. Nearly all of us were alike in that we walked into this life with our perfectionist armor. Brene Brown says that academics are just regulars with masks on. I couldn't agree more. Whether it's a mask or full body armor, we're all just regulars. It was around this same time that I met my current husband. We met on match. I was nearly 30 and thought I'd better put this process in high gear. We're not getting any younger over here. If you've had any experience with online dating, you know the perils and sheer ridiculousness of the whole thing. My sister was the person who encouraged me to sign up. However, when I went to her for assistance in creating my profile, she was absolutely zero help. Her advice was simply to write, I'm single and ready to mingle on my profile. I'm sure that would have drawn in the best of the best. One day, as I was scrolling through, I came to a message that caught my interest. All it said was, what's the catch? Now, sometimes when I tell this story, people are offended for me. How dare he? What did you say? Did you immediately block him? No. Instead, I took this as an opportunity to reflect. What had led me to this point in my life? My 15-year-old self would not be impressed by the fact that I was divorced, with no children, single at 29. She would have been horrified. How are we to have four children if we haven't even started? My 15-year-old self was to a tad, shall we say, naive. She had no idea about the life she was about to live. She could not have fathomed the challenges she was to face because everything had come pretty easily to her. She didn't have the dreams I have now. She didn't have the all-consuming desire to travel the world or pursue a seemingly unending education. She had tunnel vision for marriage and kids, and that was great for her. But what's greater and significantly more important is the growth I've undergone in the past 15 plus years. 
The transformation in who I am is intense and overwhelming at times for me to even think about. The life I had envisioned for myself did not play out. And there was a time when I had to grieve that life and move on. I had to let go of the plan I had once so carefully developed and embrace the amazing life God had for me along the way. Yes, I was 29 and single. Yes, I did not yet have children. But what I had experienced in the years between my 15-year-old self and my 29-year-old self were things I never once imagined or dreamed. And no, the What's the Catch guy did not end up to be my husband, though that would have been a great story to tell. I did, however, meet my husband Justin through the process, and it made it all worth it. A few months ago, I walked by a fluffy, stuffed bunny in Target. She reminded me of the one I was gifted as a newborn, the one I carried with me everywhere I went, loved so much that she has little fur left and only one ear from simultaneously sucking my thumb and carrying her around. I purchased this bunny because I wanted to choose joy. Though I was only six weeks pregnant, I willed myself each day to be excited instead of scared, positive instead of pessimistic. You see, we had an early loss nearly a year ago now. Through other women's stories which surfaced, I learned this was more common than we had known. But it didn't feel common to me. It didn't feel normal. It felt like a tear in my heart each time I trusted someone with this piece of our story and they responded with a flippant, oh yeah, that happened to us too. At least you know now you can get pregnant or at least it was early. When we found out we were pregnant this time around, it took an everyday effort to dampen the nerves and cultivate hope. And then it happened again, between seven and eight weeks. The heartbreak that can come after only a few weeks of hope is something I couldn't have imagined. The moments of anxiety as the emergency room doctor tried and tried and tried and ultimately failed to find anything on the ultrasound. The look of pity on his face as he explained my HCG levels were non-existent, meaning I had carried on this hope for at least a week with no baby, no life inside me. On an intellectual level, I know miscarriages happen to so many people. On an interpersonal level, I've connected with many women and couples who've walked a similar path. But deep down in my core, there was this heartbreaking part of me that wondered if this was my punishment. That this is what I get from walking away from my first marriage. I chose to walk away from that family, and now I'm struggling to build this family. God and I have talked a lot about this. Really, it's him talking to me. It's him holding me, just like Justin did the morning of our second loss. It's him wrapping his arms around me, saying over and over again, I am the light in your darkness. There is light. There will be joy. It's at this point <clears throat> that many people's stories turn to the joyful reality that they were able to conceive, carry, and deliver healthy babies. That there is light because they've experienced the light. But that's not my story. That's not our story yet. But the farther we walk in this journey, the more convinced I am that though I cannot control every single part of my life, that allowing God's story to unfold in front of us is better every time. 
my perfection doesn't even come close to measuring up. There's a song we started to sing here at Orchard a few months back. The lyrics go like this. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. On my second wedding day, as we were getting ready, my mom walked over and gave me a hug. In my ear, she whispered, I'm so proud of you. It takes guts to try again. You're so brave. I didn't feel brave in this moment. Since then, as I reflected on that day and my journey, I realized it did take guts. It took everything I had to avoid being defined by my previous failure. It took all of me to let go of my anger at my past and with myself, the anger that was keeping me from moving forward. I needed to allow myself to feel joy and happiness again. This was no easy task, for there was a long stretch of time I didn't feel deserving of joy. I had hurt another human so deeply. Joy and happiness were not for me, I had decided. Years went by and memories were created. I smiled, I laughed, I was happy at times, but I didn't experience deep joy. This type of joy only comes from God, from a willingness to forgive myself and accept his love again. It took me years to do this, to feel worthy of God's love and to feel as though I am enough. Micah 7.8 says this, Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. <laughs>